Good morning. If you don't know me, my name's Danny. Uh, I am the church planting resident here. I've been attending Evanston Bible Fellowship for almost eight years now, um, and I have the, the blessing and the privilege of preaching um, in the month of August. So um, thank you for, for having me. If you would uh, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. So this summer, if, if you haven't been with us, or if you've been gone a couple of weeks, this summer we've been going through the book of 2 Timothy. And we've been looking at the Apostle Paul's parting words to a man who was like a son to him in Timothy. And last week in particular, we looked at this contrasting picture of two different workers, an approved worker and an unapproved worker. And we saw how the approved worker is someone who rightly handles the truth. This week, the passage is going to focus even more on the life of the approved worker and what their life looks like. He's going to talk even more specifically about the life and the conduct of the approved worker. And what we're going to see is that uh, the approved worker must not only be able to handle the truth rightly, he or she must also Pursue holiness. Approved workers pursue holiness. If there's one thing, if there's one main point that I want you to walk away with this morning, it's that approved workers pursue holiness. And we're going to look at this in three different parts. So I want to walk you through uh, those three different parts. If you're taking notes this morning, this is your moment. This is, take note. You've been warned. So first, the call to holiness. The call to holiness. Second, the shape of holiness. The shape of holiness. And third, the grounding of holiness. The grounding of holiness. Let me pray before we turn to God's word. Father, we we confess to you our great need. God, we confess to you that this week we have not followed you as we should. We have not pursued holiness in all of the ways that we should. We've fallen short of your mark of perfection, Lord. And God, we pray this morning that you would, would fill us with your spirit, God. That you would give me the words to say and that you would help us to see your call to pursue holiness, Lord, that you would give us a desire to be an approved worker, and that in all of this, you would point us to the cross, point us to Jesus, our sinless Savior. So God, would you just open our eyes to the truths of your scripture this morning? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so once again, we're in 2 Timothy chapter two nineteen, and we're going to read all the way through verse 26 through the end of the chapter. Would you stand with me? This morning, as we read God's Word, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, 
some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You may be seated. So I know that here at Evanston Bible Fellowship, we're used to starting in the first verse of a passage and kind of working our way through, but I actually want to start in verse 20 this morning. And I promise we're going to come back to verse 19. Uh, So you're just going to have to trust me. So let's look at, again, let's read again verses 20 and 21 as we look at the call to holiness. The call to holiness. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. It's easy to get caught up in details and read into every single nuance when an illustration is used in scripture. And and this one is especially confusing because it's similar to other illustrations Paul uses in different books of the Bible. You know, we could get distracted by many questions about verse 20, reading reading into things, trying to figure out what is the house and who is in it and is this talking about all Christians? But thankfully, in verse 21, Paul gives his own explanation of the illustration. He doesn't leave us guessing. And I want us, as we read this illustration, to focus in on the main point that Paul is making. The approved worker is called to be a vessel for honorable use. The approved worker is called to be a vessel for honorable use. You know, one of my favorite TV shows is Parenthood. And I highly recommend it if you are in need of a good cry. That's when I watch it. (laughs) But in one of the episodes, the grandfather of the family, he's named Zeke, he... um, He purchases an old beat-up Pontiac, and he is just dead set on fixing this car. Day after day, Zeke labors over the car. He throws away broken parts. He's, He's fixing and cleaning parts that can be restored, and he's putting in new parts where needed. He will do whatever it takes to get this car up and running again. And eventually, he even starts to include the whole family. The grandkids are are chipping away and returning this car to its former glory. And after all this hard work, the car is just beautiful. 
It's unlike any other on the road. It's, it's set apart. And not only is it set apart, it's once again able to fulfill the purpose that it was originally designed for. It's no longer just taking up space in the driveway. It's usable. It's useful to the master. And it's ready to be taken on even the longest road trips. It's ready for every good work. This is the call to holiness in these verses. To cleanse ourselves of the things that are dishonorable and to be a vessel for honorable use. Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Hebrews 12.1 says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Many of us fail to see the lengths we must go to in order to pursue holiness. Cleansing of what is dishonorable takes time and intentionality. And, and some of us are kind of working on our own metaphorical car, if you will. We're working on it for maybe 30 minutes a week. We're just scrubbing with a tooth, toothbrush here, scrubbing there. And we're wondering why God hasn't made our car look like Zeke's. The call to holiness is hard work. It doesn't just happen it requires intentional care to, to cleanse what is dishonorable. And it requires diligent initiative to pursue the things that are honorable. Take the time to think about what in your life needs to be cleansed, what sins, what temptations are, are filling your life, and what needs to be pursued, what holy things, what good things need to be pursued in, those, in their place. Because as the cleansing takes place, you will grow more and more into a vessel for honorable use with a desire to be one who is set apart as holy, useful to the master, and ready for every good work. What dishonorable parts are you neglecting to cleanse? What hard work do you need to put in this week to pursue holiness? An approved worker is called to holiness. An approved worker is called to holiness. And so, so far in the passage, Paul has kind of, he started with the big picture. He started with the calling for the approved worker, the general call to holiness. But now we're going to hone in a little bit more specifically on how this shapes the life of an approved worker, how this shapes the life of an approved worker. So let's keep moving to our second point, the shape of holiness. The shape of holiness. What shape does holiness take in our lives? Look at verses 22 through 26. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, 
after being captured by him to do his will. Now we're going to camp out on this chunk for a little while. This is kind of going to be the main thing we focus on. And in, in this passage, we see that there are two main aspects of the shape of holiness. Two main aspects. Fleeing and pursuing. Fleeing and pursuing. So first, holiness looks like fleeing. So we see in this in verse 22. Paul commands Timothy to flee from youthful passions. And this is consistent with the end of verse 19, which we haven't uh, read a second time yet. But it says, um, talks about how all who call on the name of the Lord will depart from iniquity. Holiness looks like fleeing. You know, one of the worst classes that any high school student has to take is health class. I don't know if you remember health class, but just let those memories of high school just come flooding back into your head for a moment. Just remember the good old days. Nothing like a bunch of teenagers who are together in the same room talking about the most awkward topics imaginable. But one of the things that I do remember from health class is the fight or flight response of the human body. The fight or flight response. For the Christian who is dealing with sin, our response isn't fight or flight. It's fight and flight. Other parts of scripture cover fighting sin, but here we get a picture of a Christian's flight mode. It's not a picture of leaving behind sin like you're going on a casual afternoon jog on the lake. This is a picture of running for your life. A picture of sprinting like your life depends on it. The approved worker isn't called to casually or gradually leave sin. The call is to flee. And in this context specifically, Paul is talking about fleeing from youthful passions. And upon first glance at this verse, many people just kind of understand this to simply mean fleeing from sexual immorality. And while that is certainly a command elsewhere in Scripture, the, the meaning here in this context is a little bit more broad. So when you read youthful passions, you can think of sins that are more generally um, characteristic of younger people. So think kind of like actions and words that are impulsive, instinctive, just acting on passion alone, acting on impulse alone. And then later, in, in, in continuing on in the passage, to get more context, Paul in verse 23 makes reference to foolish, ignorant controversies. And in verse 24, Paul implies that the false teachers that he's addressing are quarrelsome. So we get here that Paul is describing someone who is hot-headed, someone who speaks before thinking or before listening, and someone who is unwilling to listen or change. You know, everyone can think of a little one in their life who will scream and cry until mommy is holding them or until they get that toy that they really want or until daddy relents and lets them have dessert despite any of their bad behavior. And everyone can probably think of in your life someone who isn't so little anymore but still acts like they are. And even more personally, 
Maybe you can even think of times in your life where you also didn't quite act your age. I know I can. But indulging in these youthful passions is not the shape of holiness in the approved worker's life. And we not only need to be on guard against these youthful passions in our own heart, but we also need to flee from what these youthful passions produce in others as well. We need to flee when uh, we see these passions start to bubble to the surface in others because we know the inevitable result. Quarreling. It's all over this passage. Don't only flee from your youthful passions, but also have nothing to do with the foolish, ignorant controversies that are started by others. Don't be quarrelsome. Don't breed quarrels. This repetition is clear, and it's similar to what we talked about last week. Um, Don't get caught up in secondary matters. Don't get caught up in secondary matters. Stop with the childish tendencies and getting involved with these unhelpful debates. Flee from youthful passions in yourself and flee when you see that others are overflowing with these immature tendencies. This quarreling is not the shape of holiness in the approved worker's life. Approved workers are called to flee from these temptations and sins. Holiness looks like fleeing. And secondly, holiness looks like pursuing. Holiness looks like pursuing. As we leave behind the sins of our past and the passions of our youth, we must replace them with the heavenly things. The end of verse 22 begins to cover the pursuits of the approved worker. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Righteousness is, simply put, right living. It's personal holiness. Faith is a reminder of who we are putting our trust in. Have we surrendered foolish controversies to God, or do we still hold them with a clenched fist, unwilling to let go? Love. As we pursue love, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that this doesn't exclude our enemies. This doesn't exclude our opponents. It includes loving even them, even false teachers, even those who disagree with us. And in stark contrast to those described who indulge in their youthful passions and breed controversy, the believer is called to pursue peace. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. How are you pursuing those attributes in your relationships with others? Do you humbly seek righteousness? Do you fully trust that God is in control? Do you love your enemies? Do, does, is your life characterized by peace? Paul lists even more pursuits of the approved worker as we look in verses 24 and 25, where he says, The Lord's servant must be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So there are two main ways that people wrongly deal with those who disagree with them. There are two wrong ways that people deal with it. 
There are those who let their tempers get the best of them and they respond with anger. But then there are those who let fear get the best of them and choose instead to do nothing. And while Paul called out the hotheads in verse 22, as we saw, what I love about verses 24 and 25 is that Paul doesn't let the conflict avoidant off the hook either. As there is a call to flee from sin, there is also a command to pursue holiness, to replace youthful passions with kind and gentle correction. And this again is consistent with what we saw last week. The call to avoid quarreling doesn't mean ignoring it completely. We are still called to call out sin, to defend doctrine, to speak up for what is right. See, this verse, this verse paints the picture of a worker who does actively engage with others, with these false teachers, but refuses to stoop to their level. An approved worker doesn't get overheated, doesn't get quarrelsome, and he or she also doesn't ignore the opportunity to teach and to correct, but with gentleness and kindness. And though this is specifically addressing Timothy as a pastor and leader of the church, it still guides our interactions with those who are in opposition to us. The shape of holiness in the life of an approved worker involves fleeing, and it also involves pursuing, pursuing holiness, and seeking to look more and more like Christ. For an example of what it looks like to flee and pursue, we need to look no further than Paul himself. You know, the book of Acts is full of example, full of examples of Paul addressing his opponents with kindness, patience, and gentleness. But one interaction that particularly strikes me is his address before King Agrippa and Festus in Acts 26. So would you turn to Acts 26 for a second? Acts 26, we'll start in verse 24. And at this point in the book, Paul has been kind of working his way through the Roman court system, defending himself against various charges that were put against him. But these charges were really just a corrupt attempt by the government to silence him. They're really, they're really ridiculous. Instead of, and instead of indulging in the ridiculousness of these charges, Paul uses his appearance before the king as an opportunity to respond with the gospel. So after Paul shares his testimony and the gospel, Festus, it says loudly in Acts twenty six twenty four, says, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Just pause there. We're going to keep reading, but pause there. If somebody came up to you and loudly said, you are out of your mind, how would you reply? You share the gospel with someone. You're, you talk openly about your faith. You are out of your mind. Well, let's see how Paul responds. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. 
for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul is on trial, facing really just laughable charges. And when given a chance to defend himself, Paul doesn't get into the quarrel of what he did or didn't do. Paul seizes the opportunity instead to offer the opportunity, or Paul seizes the opportunity with the kindness of offering an eternal relationship with the true and living God. He patiently endures court case after court case, looking for opportunities to be a vessel for honorable use, ready for every good work. And when told that he is out of his mind, Paul corrects Festus with gentleness and proceeds to continue sharing the gospel with his opponents. Brothers and sisters, when we talk about interacting with people who disagree with us, with with non-believers even, understand that there is so much more at stake than being right. This life is not about being right. The shape of holiness, living a life of fleeing and pursuing, isn't just about getting it right. It's not just about keeping our head down and and minding our own business, living our own lives. The shape of holiness is designed so that others can glimpse the beauty of following Jesus. Let me say that again. The shape of holiness is designed so that others can glimpse the beauty of following Jesus. And this is how Paul closes our passage back in 2 Timothy. So let's start reading again from the middle of verse 25. He writes, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. It's in these verses that we see clearly that non-believers are opponents, false teachers. They are not our enemies. These are people with eternal souls and eternal destinies with only two options. Eternity with God or eternity apart from God. These people are not our enemies. Our enemy is the devil. He is the one who ensnares them. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemy's sole purpose is to draw people away from God. And with this perspective, it's a lot easier to see how Paul kept composed in the court against outrageous accusations. He knew his main purpose was not to prove his innocence. 
Paul's main purpose for being in that courtroom in front of that king was to see if God may grant them repentance. And our purpose as approved workers, it's to pursue holiness. But it's not to pursue holiness so that we can get self-righteous and puffed up. Instead, we're called to pursue holiness so that we might see others come to repentance and faith in Jesus. Do you have this eternal perspective as you interact with the non-believers in your life? Do you desire to see God grant repentance to your unbelieving co-workers, family, and friends? Do you desire to see God grant repentance to that politician that you can't stand or that social media personality that you always disagree with or that media member who angers you? The shape of holiness is fleeing and pursuing And it is uniquely designed so that while we pursue holiness, we are also pursuing the salvation of those around us. Now, as I promised, I want to go back to verse 19 for our final point. So look back to the start of the passage, verse 19. Our final point, the grounding of holiness. The grounding of holiness. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Our pursuit of holiness is grounded in God's firm foundation. Our pursuit of holiness is grounded in God's firm foundation. You might remember that when we finished last week's passage in verse 18, Paul was talking about the dangers of the false teachers, and he was talking about how they were upsetting the faith of some and leading some to ungodliness. There was this effect that was happening around them. And if this was leading to discouragement, if this was leading to fear in the church, Paul addresses it directly here. The false teachers are no threat to the church. They are no threat to the spread of the gospel. And they are no threat to true followers of Christ because God knows those who are his. And this is a promise and a reassurance both to the church in Ephesus and also to us today. God is in control. God is sovereign over the highs and the lows of the church. God holds the church in the palm of his hand and watches over our every move. The church will never fall out of his grip. You know, I was doing some reading on, just some casual reading, on earthquake-resistant buildings. (laughs) And I found out that engineers and architects now believe that it's possible to build not just earthquake-resistant buildings, but earthquake-proof buildings, buildings that are nearly immune to the effects of earthquakes. And this is how they were described. An earthquake-proof building could, in theory, ride the waves of the most fearsome tumbler. By the way, tumbler means earthquake. I had to look that up. And remain as good as new once the shaking had stopped 
The cost of such a building, however, would be staggering. The cost of such a building, of such a firm foundation, would be staggering. In the same way, the church's foundation came at a staggering cost. But unlike the the many architects who are unwilling to pay such a cost, Jesus paid it all. The Father so loved the world that he gave his perfect and holy Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross so that the church could be built on solid rock. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected who became the cornerstone of the church. He is a firm foundation. In Christ, we can be confident that the church is just like these earthquake-proof buildings. It will ride the waves of the most fearsome earthquake. And though the ride may be scary at times, the church will come out unscathed. God will preserve his church and nothing will be able to get in his way. And this should be a great comfort to our church, to Evanston Bible Fellowship in our current season of transition. It's a reminder that the body of Christ is not dependent on having a lead pastor in order to have biblical truth brought each week. It's a reminder that the body of Christ is not dependent on a worship director in order to be led into worship each week. It's a reminder that the body of Christ is not built on the shoulders of mere man, but on the one who is both fully man and fully God, the only one who can withstand the weight. We can be confident that God's church will endure until the end. And Paul writes this truth to Timothy in verse 19, not because he wants him to have warm and fuzzy feelings, but instead to communicate the foundation for how an approved worker lives. This is the verse that flows into this call to holiness, this call to pursue holiness. It's God's firm foundation keeps us grounded. In the face of false teachers, and threats to the church, the approved worker can trust God's firm foundation and instead focus on pursuing holiness. The grounding of holiness is God's firm foundation. Brothers and sisters, we must cling to Christ, our firm foundation. Even just personally, for the church, yes, and also for our lives. He is the one who remains steady and constant, unshakable in the midst of our own ups and downs. When we don't pursue holiness perfectly, when our life doesn't look like one of an improved worker, cling to Christ and his firm foundation. No matter how much we seek to cleanse ourselves of what is dishonorable, we will never become entirely honorable on our own. Jesus is the only perfectly honorable vessel. He is the only one who had nothing to cleanse himself of. Look again at the end of verse 21. Set apart as holy, 
useful to the master, ready for every good work. And think about how Jesus was truly set apart as holy in a way that no man could attain. Think about how God used Jesus to bring about redemption for the entire human race, to save us, to save those who would put their faith in him. And think about how Jesus was the perfect servant, ready and willing for every good work, even to the point of death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, this book of 2 Timothy, it's going to continually exhort you to be an approved worker, to live a holy life, to pursue holiness. But it's also going to continually point you to Jesus, who is your perfect approved worker, your only hope, your God and Savior, who doesn't desire for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Let's pray. Father, all I can do right now is thank you for Jesus. God, as I read these verses, all I can see is how I've fallen short, Lord. But before your throne, we have a strong and perfect plea. God, help us cling to Jesus' righteousness. Help us know that he is what saves us. And God, give us a desire, a godly desire, not a self-righteous desire. Give us a godly desire, one from you, to pursue holiness, to go through the hard work and diligence, Lord, of pursuing the holiness that you call us to. God, we need your help. Would you help us this week? In Jesus' name, amen.